Welcome to Foresight's Book Lab podcast on Gaming the Future, Technologies for Intelligent Voluntary Cooperation, co-authored by Christine Peterson, Mark Miller and me, Alison Dutman. In this episode, we discuss Chapter 8, Defend Against Cyber Threats, Computer Security. Here's a brief chapter summary so you know roughly what to expect from the meeting. Physical systems rely on walls, barriers and the rule of law to enable voluntary interactions. But digital systems have the advantage of an innate voluntarism. Ignoring the coupling with the physical world, one can only send bits, not violence, through the network, creating a fundamentally voluntary starting point for building architectures. Nevertheless, in the absence of computer security, the sent bits can still be catastrophically damaging. Voluntarism itself doesn't mean risk-free cooperation. Ramping up computer security can reduce risks and create a much more cooperative world. Our special guest in this discussion is Gernot Heiser, one of the main collaborators uh, at SEL4, which you'll learn much more about in this meeting. Concepts we discussed include physical and cyber threat differences, fatal AI thresholds, cyber war scenarios, hardware supply chain risk, and computer security systems such as SEL4. If you like the book, follow it at Fawcett Institute on Substack. There will soon be a physical version available as well. I hope you enjoy. So the main question that I would have for you is SEL4 seems to me to clearly be, um, uh, I will just say it the way I've said it to other audiences, uh, the most important software project in the world. Um, I, I truly believe that. I think it's it's very clear. I don't think that there's a close second. Uh, I think our security going forward, our ability to survive various upcoming crises and all that uh, would all go much, much smoother uh, if SEL4 were massively adopted and if much of the software infrastructure that the world is resting on, uh, if we were in the process of porting it on uh, from the current insecurable infrastructure onto SEL4. So the question I have is, given the what to me seems like the obvious, crucial, crisis-level importance of advancing SEL4, uh, how is it that the world thinks it's spending many, many billions of dollars on computer security research and on trying to secure infrastructure against cyber war and other attacks, and SEL4 is uh, essentially an unfunded project, is being funded at a tiny trickle by a university. Uh, How is it that um, uh, that the adoption path to SEL4 is also um, so meager that there are so few projects uh, actually trying to get so few projects for which computer security would actually be crucial, like self-driving cars, um, uh, that uh, where SEL4 has already demonstrated strength through the DARPA uh, through the DARPA challenge uh, at creating unsubvertible automated physical systems, uh, the, the, uh, automa- the um, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, how is it that there's been so little effort to adopt SEL4 and other projects, and especially how is it that it's been ignored by the billions of, many billions of dollars of funding of cybersecurity? Okay, um... I do share some of your frustration, Mark. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, it's been 
definitely a more painful and slower process than I hoped for. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's, it's quite as bad as you presented it here. Um, in terms of sort of support, we're not swimming in billions. Um, but, uh, we have, we're getting a, a fair bit of support now from various quarters. Um, one is that, um, that hasn't been, well, DARPA has been supporting the SEL4 ecosystem for quite a while. And um, there's new programs coming up that seem to be, from what I can tell, um, very much in the same sort of vein of continuing that support. Of course, I can't read too much into it until I've seen the actual um, announcements, but uh, that they haven't come out yet. But sort of looking at who who's in charge there and what they're talking about and thinking, well, that, I think there's there's definitely um, more more to come f- from that direction. There's the UK National Cyber Security Center that has um, that's not p- much announced yet. It's about to um, that has sent a um, significant amount of money our way, and um, the. On the other hand, the SEO4 Foundation has attracted a number of industry players. Um, in particular, the biggest group there is actually um, electric car makers looking at autonomous driving. So th- things are moving a bit more than um, it might seem to the um, untrained eye. Although I, I definitely would love to see more. And in particular, I would love to see more collaboration across the industry in, in moving these things across rather than every company trying to roll their own and uh, most likely uh, with, with a pretty high risk of stuffing it up, I would say. Um, so that that's one aspect of the answer. Um, the other one is, of course, that the general autonomous driving space has... <laughs> I wouldn't say bigger problems, but has a lot of other problems too, uh, including the the whole trustworthiness of the AI itself um, and the approach taken there. Uh, and I must say, what I hear from Elon Musk basically applying the same patch and pray approach that um, Microsoft is applying to Office, um, he seems to apply that to autonomous cars that can kill people and will kill people um that that's definitely outright scary and shows a complete irresponsibility and dismissal of um sister of of the the, the threat to human life that's uh, at work there so there's definitely still a huge need for a rethink but i think um Besides that, there's definitely much more happening than people are aware of. There's also a lot of frustration from my side in seeing where it's not happening. Like we've been in discussions directly or indirectly with the major car manufacturers who then decided to adopt some outdated technology instead for whatever reasons. <laughs> so we're not over the hill there yet, but at least there's a significant number of players that are really um, adopting this technology.
What did you think of the rest of the chapter, by the way, or, or the rest of the book, if you've taken a look at that, uh, with regard to setting a context around uh, you know, the, the role of secure computing and sort of the more and well, the larger context of how secure, secure computing fits into moving into a safer future? I haven't had to look at the rest of the book, but um, I did read the, the rest of the chapter. And I think some of these things I cannot comment on because it's not my expertise in particular, the relation to um, cyber currencies, etc. You know way more about that than I do. Um, and how this relates to the blockchain ecosystem. I'm so definitely out of my depth there. Um, but the the idea of really using this as a building block for secure systems and the, the idea that the sort of intriguing idea of um, takeover by stealth, if you, <laughs> you seem to be proposing there, is it, certainly very intriguing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I wasn't sure whether I consider that overly optimistic or overly pessimistic or, <laughs> or unrealistic, but um, it, it's certainly an int- very interesting aspect. And I must say, it's 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 a week ago since I read it, so I'm with a million context switches in between. So some of that uh, has already sort of left the case. Say, Mark, Kate is pointing out in the chat that there will be viewers who are not familiar with SEL4. So um, can you, uh, either you or Gernot, give a a sort of a high-level definition and explain how the approach differs from operating systems we might already be familiar with? Okay. Um, Yeah. And uh, Kate, can we, do we know how to unmute Kate? Yes. uh Ah, good. Um, All right, I, I think okay. you know your audience better, Mark, and you've done a good job in describing what SEL4 is. Why don't you have Okay, so um, the, the thing that's unique about SEL4 uh, itself is that it's not just a good, secure operating system, but it was one that was constructed from the beginning uh, so that it could be proven correct and secure with an automated proof check, with a a mechanized proof, as we call it. Uh, And the effort to and, and it was really the first substantial system in the history of computer science, I would say it was the first real substantial industrial quality system that had an end-to-end proof that the implementation was secure. Uh, Most previous such efforts didn't actually, you know, either looked at the implementation code of trivial academic exercises or created a model of the system, abstracted, manually abstracting from the code and then would carry out formal proofs that the model of the system was correct, leaving the gap between the actual system and the model of the system uh, uh, as a, as a um, fallible manual step. So SEL4 has a 
uh, was constructed to do that, uh, succeeded at doing that. Uh, uh, I remember a conference that I was at a few years later where every other system that was uh, formally proven correct would all compare themselves to SEL4. It was kind of the gold standard of, of here's the success that we need to do better than or we need to compare ourselves to. Um, but as we say in the chapter, even a ma- mathematical proof doesn't give you certainty, does not give you zero risk, because there's all sorts of ways that the uh, something can be insecure even after a mathematical proof has allegedly proven it's secure. Um, so even after a mathematical proof, and Toby Murray, by the way, of the SEL4 project, uh, has written a very nice paper on uh, explaining some of the remaining sources of risks after something has been mathematically proven secure. Um, so the other wonderful thing about SEL4 is that DARPA subjected it to a really intense red team attack that's um, explained in the paper that we give a citation to in the book. Um, and it was by a red team attack team at DARPA that Uh, No other previous system had survived a red team attack by by these attackers, uh, and the attackers in this case reported that they made no progress even towards finding a weakness. So the the kind of exercise that a red team attack is and the kind of exercise that a mathematical proof is are very different forms of evidence. The strengths and weaknesses of one are very complementary to the strengths and weaknesses of another. So having two such very different forms of evidence all point to the possibility that SEL4 is actually perfectly secure is actually some fairly strong evidence that it is perfectly secure. Another thing we explain in the, in the book is that We can never have zero risk because we can never be sure that we've built a perfect system, but that doesn't mean that we can't build perfect systems. We can just never know that we have done so. Uh, So SEL4 might be perfect. There's some good evidence, but we don't know. So our risk that it's imperfect is not zero. Um, So that's that's sort of the, the main thing that's specific to SEL4. More generally, SEL4 is an object capability operating system. Uh, The object capability access control paradigm is one that uh, I've been doing work in for for many decades, and so have several of the people on this call. Uh, And uh, for uh, there's many things to say about why it's a much better security paradigm for building secure systems on. So, you know, if SEL4 had been proven perfectly secure at implementing a bad security paradigm such that it was impossible for application programmers to use it to build practical secure systems, it wouldn't be doing us much good. Fortunately, SEL4 is implementing what, as far as we know, is the best security paradigm, the best access control paradigm uh, to implement, to enable other programmers to build secure systems on top of it. And of all of the things we can say about object capabilities, and there, and, and um, 
Uh, the most important is the principle of least authority, uh, which is that it naturally supports building systems in which each component of the system is given, ideally, no more authority than it needs to carry out its proper duties. And um, I say ideally because stated as least, it's, it's, of course, an unrealizable ideal. We're trying to get as close as we can to least. We're, um, but the contrast is all of the other access control paradigms give each component vastly, vastly more authority than they need to carry out their proper duties. Uh, and therefore, uh, if they have a flaw enabling them to be subverted, or if they're actually written maliciously, but if they have a, but, uh, but in either case, even if the underlying foundations are secure, if the things built on top of it uh, uh, have subvertible flaws, then attackers can make use of those flaws to at least subvert what that component itself is doing. The object capability approach enables compositional security where not only is each component given the least authority that it needs, but it enables the authors of that component to build that component so that the subcomponents of that component are in turn given the least authority with um, that they need to be subcomponents of that component. It depends on the author of that component doing so, but enables them to do so. And that creates this fractal resilience that we talk about in the paper, where at every level of composition, we further uh, reduce the aggregate risk. We further remove the attack surface. And by doing this at multiple scales simultaneously, we get a multiplicative increase in robustness. And I'll leave the geometric uh, explanation to, to the uh, diagrams in the chapter. And since several other people on this call are um, well-versed in the and have been working in the object capability paradigm, uh, if anybody would like to jump in and point out some important things that I've missed, uh, please do so. There is a question from Kate in the chat. She's in a noisy environment, so she wanted <clears throat> to communicate via chat. She has a specific <coughs> question, <coughs> excuse me, which is, what do users have to unlearn the most in order to use SCL4? Any examples or stories of people needing to adapt to the new architecture? <clears throat> so that that's an interesting question. Um, I, I guess the you. Well, one aspect is you really only get the benefits of SEO4 if you have a, a, a relatively fine-grained composition of your system, right? It needs to be um, broken into relatively small components and uh, composed of those. And so that's in contrast in how, to how most systems are built, um, whether it's operating systems like Linux or Windows where everything is in one big mess, um, and if you f find any exploit, you you control the system. Um, if if you if you structure your system like that, then the guarantees SEO four gives gives you are not worth anything. You 
that this, it, the, the whole system architecture needs to be adapted so it can make use of this um, encapsulation and minimum um, least privilege. That's nothing new about ACL4. This is sort of um, inherent in this. Um, what, what's really one of the fundamentals underneath is this idea of having a minimal trusted computing base um, and using least privilege in order to minimize the damage you can do. What SEO, and that, that's a pretty well as principle that goes to the Orange Book 80s. Um, the, the main difference with SEL4 is that it gives you, it guarantees your isolation boundaries and um, therefore it allows you to really enforce interfaces and the object capability model allows you to use these interfaces in a least privileged fashion. It's, a, it's actually, I, I, I can't sort of um, have a slide at some of my colleagues there. Um, SEO4 was the first operating system kernel that was probably verified. In the meantime, there's about a couple others. Most of them are academic toys. But interestingly, none of them bothered with an object capability system, which, as we know, makes life so much easier if you don't have to worry about capabilities and prove that all authorization is probably done subject to a presenting a capability. I see Alan has his hand up. Um, Alan, would you like to say to uh, yeah. your question? Yeah. So to, to Kate's question, um, end users um, have to unlearn the fact that they can have security without it being annoying. Um, object capabilities allow you to build user interactions that are smooth, seamless, and still have security. Developers, on the other hand, have to adapt. And um, they have to understand that they have to explicitly grant all the permissions a given function will need, and that they cannot rely on global variables to pass things around and have permissions around. And that takes some unlearning. But uh, from the end user point of view, um, they have to understand that even though the system isn't annoying, they still have security. One of the things that uh, I've definitely found uh, over my career trying to teach people object capabilities is that people who are good software engineers uh, who understand abstraction and modularity and have no background in security, uh, are it's easier to teach them object capability security than it is uh, people who have a background in conventional computer security. Uh, so that's a major, major piece of unlearning is that there's this whole conventional approach to computer security that um, uh, based on the, the opposite uh, access control paradigm, uh, identity-based access controls or access control lists, uh, which is the, the thing that, that pushes us to the opposite of uh, principle of least authority, where the square root function inside my math library is able to delete all of my files within the rules of my operating system. Uh, that's because it operates as me. It's, allow it's using my identity. It operates according to my identity. And people treat teaching people 
to give up the identity orientation, or at least de-emphasize it to the degree to which it needs to be de-emphasized. Now, there's still an identity orientation, even in object capability systems, but it's very, very different, and it's incredibly less important than it is in uh, the conventional paradigm. So there's this whole way of thinking in the conventional paradigm that that you have to unlearn if you're coming from a background in that conventional paradigm. Um, and of course, that also is part of the explanation why the uptake is so slow in many ways, right? Because you need to, um, there, there's a lot of uh, functionality to develop. And of course, the easiest way to provide all that f- functionality people expect is to take a, um, put a virtual machine in there, put a Linux system in there and get it from there. But then um, you, you you don't really get any benefits in terms of security as as um, far as this functionality is concerned. So in order to make it really safe, um, you have to re-engineer all that um, legacy functionality on an SEL4-based system. And that that's the biggest block of um, it's less of an issue in where SEL4 is really deployed mostly at the moment in, in, embedded in cyber physical systems because they have um, much, they require much less functionality. Also, they, they tend to be fairly static and um, uh, therefore don't really require um, any much resource management, etc., which is all complexities that uh, you need to overcome when you want to build a system. Although I do see from the automotive space that there is a much much more um, dynamism, if that's the word required, than our current user level frameworks allow. It's not a limitation of SEL4; it's the uh, limitation of the developer frameworks we provide on top of SEL4, which are definitely extremely limited. And um, sort of overcoming that barrier is actually something we're working on at the moment actively with industry partners. <clears throat> and of course, from there, it's a, it's, a, it's a far cry to sort of replacing a general purpose operating system with SEO4. Um, and of course, that is the part where the object capability paradigm is most is particularly powerful, but it's also the part where still a lot of research is outstanding, not just development, but actual research on how do you build performance systems that um, um, have this enforceable, provable security and um, um, enforcing the build, build on least privilege and all the other standard security um, principles. I see Steve. Uh, Chris Hebert next, and then, St- and then Steve Omahandra. Very good. Okay, um, I'm interested in whether how long it will be till we can get OCAP-based systems as our primary personal computing environments, the place where I send email and browse the web and all the other things one does. Is anybody working on building environments like that? It doesn't have to start out great. Linux started out with pretty unusable systems and uh, getting to usability was much later, starting with sophisticated environments for sophisticated users seems like a fine thing. So there's actually an example of that out there, which is perfectly usable, and that's the G-Node system. Um, That's a capability-based, componentized operating systems framework. Um, The developer 
is a company called Genode System, G- Genode Systems or Genode or whatever. Um, and their developers actually run Genode on their PCs. Um, so, so it, it's there. Um, the, it also runs on SEO4, although that's, um, I don't think that's actually actively supported and was never uh, really complete. And the, the whole Gnode framework has issues in the sense of what you could actually possibly prove about the system. Um, and, and it's written in C++, which basically for the time being rules out verification anyway. Is, is so, anybody uh, working on something like that for SEL4? Um, we do have a research project that's very early stage. Uh, we call it the um, Back to the Future project because it attempts what people tried to do in the 70s and 80s, build provable secure oper- general purpose operating systems. Um, but it's our first application for funding got knocked back. Um, we got some funding through the um, UK NCSC support um, to keep it going, and um, we'd like to scale it up. But that's the most targeted um, initiative in this way right now. And um, the plan there is to come up with a credible prototype about where we can do some high-level proofs and argue and, and proofs of some critical components and argue that the rest of the critical components are also tractable to proof. And um, yeah, you, you basically ha- have a template on which people can then build. Okay. Steve? Uh, I think the SEL4 project is super exciting. Like Mark said, it's probably one of the most important computer science projects there is. I'm especially interested in how you formalize the various properties that you needed. In this group, we've talked a lot about trying to use formalization, say, on the blockchain for smart contracts, for hybrid smart contracts, which are partly on the blockchain, partly off, for how they connect to real-world physical systems. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about how challenging it will be to expand formalization uh, beyond a sort of very tight container and more into the physical world. Yep. Okay, I have to say I'm not a formal methods person. I'm an operating systems guy. Uh, I, I do work a lot with formal methods people and I developed a reasonable feel on what's feasible and what sort of timeframes might be. Um, the, that, but in the, that's really a question. How can we scale the whole thing up, right? We've, we've got a system that's verified that's 10,000 lines of code, roughly. Um, any sort of halfway reasonable non-trivial system will have a trustworthy trust computing base that's probably an order of magnitude bigger and of course you can pay you can play a security verifiability trade-off by making the components smaller um, not as a security performance trade-off i meant to say um, making the components smaller then they have become easier to verify and um, but then you have more and you have to verify the composition and of course the um every context switch costs you performance, although I'm yet to see a case in a properly designed system where this is a, a real issue. Um but yeah, so the, the the scalability is generally a really big thing and push button verification techniques will be required and some people have been using those including on operating systems quite successfully so this is something we also started looking at just recently um and then the question how, how do you formalize things etc um 
there's there's actually a fair amount of formalization work on various aspects going on in the industry already, right? Um, Amazon and Apple um, and a um, number of other big companies, they they actually employ a lot of formal methods people and um, typically using more model checking and SMTP solver-based approaches. So typically proof um, relatively narrow uh, properties, but in a much more scalable fashion as opposed to sort of the, the opposite extreme of what we've done in SEL4, which is through full functional correctness, um, but then being at the mercy of relatively small human verifiers. And to, to me, that, the biggest frustration of the project is how much effort it takes to change anything on the kernel because first you have to buy, get buy-in from the verifiers and then they actually have to do it, which is what of magnitude more work. Um, so I, I think there's a fair bit of, of experience around already in verifying the desirable system properties um, or for, for, sorry, formalizing the desired properties, um, formalizing interfaces, et cetera. Uh, that, that's probably not the, the hardest bit in terms of scalability, but it's also something that already exposes a lot of the bugs. Um, we've, we've seen that in SEO4 itself where the, the bugs we found in the kernel, which were Fair number, 450 for 10,000 lines of code is a pretty high bug density for operating systems code, but it's because we didn't really QA it much, let a few students lose on it. Um, and they broke down pretty much equally um, into the top-level functional spec, the sort of intermediate-level executable spec, and the actual C code. Um, so by just specifying things, you you flush out a lot of bugs, and we've seen had similar experience um, later on, when we added new features to the kernel, changed the, the scheduling model to be a, uh, suitable for mixed criticality systems, etc. I think in that case, there's probably an even higher percentage of the bugs flushed out at the specification level. Um, so yeah, there, there's um, there, there's a reasonable amount of uh, understanding how to do these things. Uh, the, the, the biggest limit tends to be the number of people who can actually do it. There's, there's definitely a human resourcing challenge here. Um, on the other hand, um, what you get, and this is, comes down again to, to just the, the benefit of just formally specifying things, um, it, it forces you to be explicit about all the assumptions you make. And um, We've just gone through another case of that where uh, Mark might be aware of the, the time protection project where we try to prove that a, a version of SEO4 on suitable hardware can provably eliminate micro-architectural timing channels. Um, we had a paper on that a few years ago, a one best paper award, etc., and we were really thought we had it nailed and then we go into verification and we find oh we forgot a few we overlooked a few things <laughs> uh, and um, one of them is the reason I'm here in Zurich at the moment to talk to my collaborators and um, discuss how, how we actually can s- solve that in a way that the hardware people will actually buy it and uh, provide us the right hooks for it so sorry for this somewhat rambling response which I'm not actually sure whether to answer your question <laughs> feel, feel free to, to- Okay. 
Uh, Alan next, then Ryan, and then I have a question. Yeah, I think one of the things to, to reach Chris's goal is language support to ensure that your program isn't violating the OCAP rules. Uh, yes, it's nice to have a, a UI that uh, enforces, that lets you apply your policies with OCAPs. But I think the thing it's written in should also be OCAP. Uh, the, you know, the Joe E project, uh, Adrian Metler's project, your Java program would compile if you violated the OCAP rules. Um, the, the ECMAScript work is doing that for JavaScript. Um, I just read a blog post. There's a, a Rust project to make Rust have a an OCAP version of Rust. Uh, and I think without that, we're not going to get uh, the desktop. It may look like an OCAP desktop to the user, but uh, Gnode's written in C++. It isn't OCAPs under the covers. I'd like I'd like to uh, respond to that. Um, uh, the this goes back to this uh, recursive reduction of the attack surface that I was mentioning before. I think that languages secure OCAP languages uh, like uh, the Agoric work on hardened JavaScript uh, that Alan mentioned uh, and the earlier language work like Joey, um, uh, but hardened JavaScript being something that's uh, re you know, ready for production use by a, a multi-million person uh, programming ecosystem, uh, that this has in, in many ways as much to contribute to overall vulnerability reduction as secure operating systems um, uh, because at this finer grain that operating systems can't touch, it also removes much of the attack surface. It also provides uh, software authors the ability to divide things into yet finer components all the way down to the granularity of individual programming language objects that are encapsulated and that uh, interact with each other. I mean, it's already the case in, in normal object-oriented programming that you program with encapsulated objects and unforgeable pointers, uh, object pointers or object references. Uh, and the rules of uh, pure object programming are already essentially the rules of object capability programming. Um, uh, but by making the languages uh, true object capability languages, uh, you get to um, uh, remove uh, those other sources of vulnerability down to very, very fine grain. And if you do it both at the operating system granularity and at the programming language granularity, those benefits multiply. You get a multiplicative benefit. Uh, just to be very uh, explicit, operating systems, by the nature of how they're implemented, are fundamentally limited to page granularity. Uh, you can't get protection of um, uh, of protection units that are smaller than an individual page of memory. Uh, and uh, object capability programming languages can take you uh, all the way down. Uh, and the other really beautiful thing is that if you is that if you got both object capability programming language and an object capability operating system, you can bridge the two. So from the point of view of somebody thinking at the operating system level, the object capability systems written in the programming language seem from the outside to just be more object capability, um, 
operating system uh, domains, you know, protection domains that you can interact with by doing, uh, you know, by doing system calls because you're doing it across a bridge that turns them into uh, language calls, uh, and vice versa. If you're to a person programming in the programming language, in an object capability programming language, they can see all of the operating system services prevented, presented through capability APIs uh, as if they, are pre- they are, were written in the object capability programming language uh, presented through the programming, uh, th- you know, through, the, uh, through object APIs. Uh, Agoric um, is, you know, we have our own blockchain-based operating system that we've done called SwingSet that uh, was built to directly reflect that. And we've got, going back to the uh, work that we did um, in the late 90s and 2000s, we also bridged to a cryptographic distributed object protocol that, again, makes remote objects look like just more objects written in the programming language, even though they're uh, running on mutually suspicious machines elsewhere. You're, You're you're protected against the machines by the protocol in very much from the programmer's point of view in very much the same way you're protected from objects that you don't trust. Okay, uh, Ryan. Well, that was a lot to digest. Um, I have a question about Fuchsia, which is or is or was an OCAP from the bottom operating system. Does this paradigm support uh, translation to SEL4 more easily is well. How do I how do I think about shaping the trust boundary uh, incrementally? Uh, I guess those might be two different questions. Yeah, I am not familiar with Fuchsia. It's been on my you know list of things to become familiar with. Uh, if anybody here is familiar with Fuchsia, if they would care to comment. Uh, Gernot, have you taken a look at it at all? We we had a project, actually, a student project a few years back, um, mapping it onto SCL4, which wasn't all that difficult and made me really question why the hell did Google do this from scratch rather than taking SCL4? Having been at Google, I can attest to the extremely strong, not invented here, syndrome that pervades the culture over there. Uh, The reason they did it from scratch, I would say, is primarily um, because they had a bunch of engineers itching to do an operating system. Hmm. (laughs) I have to say, knowing one of the people who worked on Fuchsia, they're definitely that kind of person. Yeah, but I'm sorry, Gerda, please continue. Um. Yeah, I can't really say much more about that. It, it wasn't. It wasn't even called Fuchsia at the time. There, there was another name for it at that stage. Um, so it was fairly early. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't really. It, it maps on the SL4 as far as I can tell, and um, with incredible overhead. So there, there's people who compared performance, at, not us, and they found it's a fact of 10 in IPC slower than SEL4, which is pretty much the, the sort of the standard ratio in, um, in any non-L4 microkernel. Uh, it tends to be about that speed. So, yeah, it, it, on the one side, it's it's great that there's building an operating system that's built on the right principles. And on the other hand, it seems a bit of a crazy project. 
Um, the second part of my question was, uh, what are the what, what are the paradigms that that help me understand how to kind of carve out the trust boundary from, let's say, I I say, oh, I'm going to implement something that I that works right now in Linux. I'll just just uh, I'll turn all the permissions off and and uh, uh, create a, a very loose boundary that's not secure. And then over time, I will take different pieces and and put them in their own kind of well described layers in SCL4 and yep. and get them communicating with each other. How do what's like? This is a very technical question. And I apologize to the group, but uh, where do I learn about these paradigms and how to how to incrementally manage that kind of management pain? I don't think I can give you a principled answer there. Um, it's actually the approach that's um, been taken in the DARPA Hackens program and got dubbed um, incremental cyber retrofit by the DARPA program manager. Um, so the, the Boeing people took the existing system, which was Linux-based, just put it in a virtual machine on top of SCL4, and then started pulling components out, either rewriting them or putting them as native components on SEO4 until they had a, a really bulletproof system. Um, it, it It's just one aspect of sort of good system design, right? What, what makes a good component and how do you have to choose the components that the, you minimize the number of components or the or total amount of code you have to depend on? Thank you. Oh, and um, yeah, I think I queued myself up next with a question. And frankly, I forgot what my question was. So um, if anybody else would like, has something to uh, to raise, please do. Meanwhile, Mark, maybe you could go back to Allison's list. Okay, actually, let me, um, I'm going to ask Alan a question. Um, Alan, you pointed out in one of the drafts of this chapter uh, something that we completely agree with but never have not yet done anything about, which is in, in this chapter and in the entire book, one of the things that we ignore that's kind of essential is user interface security, and that it's kind of the, you know, the, the last hundred yards of, of system security, and it's something that that is often an afterthought is witnessed by the fact that we omitted it from the book so far. Uh, and without it, much of the rest of computer security is pointless. So I was wondering if you could you could uh, explain the um, how all of this relates to user interface security and in particular how the same how how the the bridge from the user to the system, has some similar with our approach to user interface security has some similarity to these bridges between language and OS or between uh, language and protocol, et cetera. Well, yeah. So um, of course, if the human doesn't understand the implications of their actions, uh, you're going to have trouble. Uh, but um, in the, in the user experiences that we developed, um, the key principle, and I think uh, Kapid Yi was the first one to point out that you have to make the secure way the easy way. 
because people will always choose the easy way. And so, um, you know, the focus has to be that um, when the user wants to do something, the easiest way to do it will not violate the kind of security properties that you want to enforce underneath it. Uh, that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that uh, you don't want um, you don't want to be asking questions. Are you sure? In fact, Stickler and I have a tech report. Are you sure? Yes. Oops. That's the title. Um, and so you have to think about the use state of the user's brain at each stage of the interaction. Uh, in particular, the reason a confirmation dialog box fails, we believe, is that the user's brain is already on the next task by the time the dialog box pops up. So that if you're going to confirm, what you want to do is you want pre-confirmation. It's like opening the cover on the launch missile or abort missile um, uh, on the, uh, that, you know, at NORAD, where they always show they have to lift the cover before they could push the big red button. Right. Um, you're at that point, the user is still focusing on the task at hand, not the next. One. And so uh, Stigler came up with this way of implementing uh, uh, pre-confirmation. So before you, the, the delete button, you have to enable the delete button before you can delete. And then we don't have to ask after. But the whole point is that we need psychology experts to understand the state of the user's brain. Uh, if we're going to have secure systems end-to-end, including the human being. Yeah, I mean, that comes back to the fact that security is really a multi-layer problem, right? You can't solve it at the operating system alone. You can't solve it without the operating system either. Um, the same applies to the protocol level um, and the certainly the, the human interface, for sure. But what we found about OCAPs a, a, a big part of what people do is sharing. Sharing with other programs they're running, sharing with other coworkers or friends. And um, what we found was that OCAPs enable us to make seamless interaction designs um, that are simply impossible with an ACL system, with an identity-based system. And so that, that gives us hope that with, with OCAPs underneath, we can develop uh, user interactions that uh, will make it easier for people to uh, avoid making mistakes. Yeah, let, let me say that that you know, getting a little more philosophical uh, is that the there's a certain natural flow that that um, uh, for doing making requests for the sake of functionality that has developed over time in computer science, both at the language level and at the operating system level. Uh, And the uh, OCAPs bring security in a way that's aligned with the way that we organize interactions and organize knowledge for the sake of functionality. There's a certain sparseness of required knowledge that we build our systems around. Um, and the, uh, so in a user interface, when you want to ask a program to operate on a file, you, you know, you, you 
tell it that you would like it to operate in a file. A po- a, an open file dialog box pops up, for example. You select the file from there, and then it operates on that file. That's the, that's the user interaction. The implementation, the conventional implementation of that user interaction right now is that it's the program itself that renders the open file dialog box. So the program itself has access to all of your files, and you're only depending on its proper behavior to only operate on the file that you select. But that's but from the, the user's point of view, um, uh, you're just, you, you know, they see the same open file, file dialog box they normally see, and they're just asking the program to operate on that one file. In an OCAP system, uh, and in particular in the world, in the systems that uh, Mark Stiegler and Alan Karp and Copying E and Tyler Close have done such seminal work on, the, uh, these acts of designation, these acts of saying what you want to operate on, are also the acts that provide the authority to operate on it. So the, um, uh, So it wouldn't be the program that can see all of your files. It would be the act of selecting it in a open file dialog box that would give that program access to just that one file. Likewise, at the programming language level or at the, the uh, API design level, you design APIs so that the parameters to a function call or a method call uh, only contain arguments that are relevant to the request you're making. And if if those arguments that are that are parameterizing the request that are explaining to the recipient what object the requester wants the recipient to operate on if by simply making those requests be the ones that carry the authority to to do the operation on the designated object uh then the least authority, the sparseness of authority, the sparseness of permissions that you've created is aligned with the sparseness of knowledge that we naturally create in order to build usable systems for functionality. Uh, you know, there's, our systems are filled with a tremendous number of things, most of which are irrelevant to any one request. We construct systems to create a sparsity of knowledge so that we can have a tractable problem of what question, what, what request to make and what to provide as parameters to that request. And the sparseness of knowledge we create so that it's tractable to formulate those requests, uh, OCAPs align the, the sparseness of permission along those lines. Uh, and that's why we say sometimes that whereas other security paradigms are security paradigms that are bolted onto the side of computation that occurs by other means, OCAPS is a model of secure computation. It's not a model of security to be bolted onto computation by other means. One of the objections I always get to OCAPS is the the fine-grained nature. How could people possibly manage all those millions of permissions? It's just crazy. And this, this Stigler's, I think Stigler was the one who identified the concept of using acts of designation as acts of authorization. 
I point out, if you want to operate on a file, you've got to say what file it is. You've got millions of files, but you've got to say which file it is. Um, and that act of designation can be the act of authorization. By the way, Polaris showed that you can get a lot of the benefits even without OCAPs, just by using the same fine-grained principles uh, that if you have an OCAP underlying system, would be far easier to implement. Uh, for those who don't know, in uh, mid-early 2000s, we built a virus-safe and computing environment for, for Microsoft uh, for Microsoft Windows XP, which, if you remember, was horribly insecure. Uh, our users, we had about 150 users, uh, some of them got hit by real viruses. I remember Markham got one that would have forced him to rebuild his machine, I think. Uh, and Polaris protected him just by applying this principle of least authority. Uh, at the level of the application. Uh, uh, we couldn't get it turned into a product for perfectly good reasons. Couldn't charge enough to cover the support costs, but it was sad. Oh, uh, something I, I do want to bring up that's sort of the um, the weakness of object capabilities uh, by themselves as a paradigm, uh, which is uh, in the chapter... Uh, and drawing on the, the uh, previous work that Alan and I and others have done, or Horton, um, uh, we, ta we talk about proactive safety and reactive damage control. Uh, object capabilities, for because of le uh, their support for least authority, are much, much better than anything else at proactive safety. At By giving out the least authority needed, uh, your, um, the the opportunities for uh, uh, damage, for, for bugs leading to damage, are much better limited. But, of course, sometimes we're still going to give out more authority than we should have. Sometimes the authority we give out will be abused, uh, and we will regret having given it out. And because of the anonymity of object capabilities as practiced directly as a, as a paradigm, uh, once authorities already given out are abused, there's little recourse to recovering from that. Um, uh, and the identity-based access control system is not normally explained as a paradigm to support reactive damage control, but it does actually contain one element that gives it an advantage for reactive damage control, which is being able to attribute misbehavior so that you can choose to stop interacting with the entity to whom you've attributed the misbehavior. Uh, and that you know, raises all sorts of questions about uh, false flag operations of misleading uh, you to to mis to misattribute the misbehavior to the wrong party and then cut off the wrong party, which is itself a form of attack. Uh, and all of those games are interesting, but it doesn't contradict the need to be able to recover somehow from inappropriately having handed out uh, too much authority. So, you know, Alan and I are already familiar with kind of the Horton approach and the 
uh, Alan uh, built Alan and Stiegler built a system called Scoops that uh, uh, for file access that is kind of a special case of Horton. But so before before I get to any of that, I also just wanted to to ask Gernot, who doesn't have anything like Horton in there, uh, what their what you know what Gernot, what's your uh, experience with and attitude towards the issue of retroactively recovering from having given out too much authority. I don't really have any experience with that because we really haven't built real dynamic on SEO force. So sadly, just approach adding at the moment. Um, the capabilities in SEO four basically uh, used to enforce static architecture, where you um, no, no no access rights cha- change during the execution of the system. So we we've built the basis, but we haven't really got much um, experience in actually using it to the full extent. Yeah, so that I mean that's clearly where revocation comes in, um, and. Uh, that's that's your recourse. Uh, you may not even need to know who is abusing a particular uh, provision. Um, you just need know to know need to know that it was abused. Um, Horton allows in an, in an enterprise setting um, something like Horton, where you can provide audit trails of who you know who delegated to whom and who did what with what resource uh, can help. And that's what we did in the Zebra copy work with certificate-based. Um, you could include audit trail information with the certificate that was actually used as a capability. And I wanted to bring up another point here. All the discussion so far has concerned a single machine. But, of course, the world is distributed, and we're sharing across machines. We're card sharing across jurisdictions, as we call it. And... Uh, those are also very important, and OCAPS has a lot to say there. I think uh, I've been attending the Internet Identity Workshop since number seven. I think we just had number 35. They're every two years. They're twice a year. Um, and um, when I started, uh, I couldn't use the word capability. That was uh, known to be a false technology. Uh, and now everybody is, is everything is by default uh, capabilities. So that's we went through the same with microkernels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I, I agree. I remember reading the papers on why microkernels did work. So, uh, but uh, 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 but uh, you know that's all about distributed systems, and I think OAuth, even though they didn't know they were inventing a capability system, is close enough that uh, it it helped change the thinking along with Markham's presentation at the Rebooting Web of Trust. It was so funny. Um, that was a couple of months before an IIW. And um, everybody Internet at IIW I- was just, just astounded about this brand new technology called capabilities and this genius Mark Miller. And, you know, they all wanted to to touch his ring. And, and you know, it was quite, quite a remarkable shift. But, <laughs> I, I, it, it, you know, I was laughing, but... But when you remember you showed up and people were, you know, just, just come, coming up to touch your shoulder as a great honor. So, uh, but uh, they had no idea that this thing existed. And uh, uh, 
So, uh, but I think now in the in the world of distributed systems, uh, capabilities in the form primarily of digital certificates, um, even though OAuth error tokens are used in real systems as capabilities, uh, uh, is is beginning to take over the access control model for distributed systems, and I think that's 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 quite important. Uh, one, the thing that's um, uh, in this context, the thing that's especially important about Horton as a pattern for identity-based access control for reactive damage control for for this keeping track of delegation chains so that you can do targeted selective revocation according to attributed misbehavior uh, is that it's a pattern built on a pure capability foundation. It doesn't require at the foundational level anything other than pure capabilities uh, in order to provide at a higher layer through this pattern uh, the identity tracking and targeted revocation. So it could, for example, be built on top of SEL4 without introducing uh, any new foundational elements. Now, in in the real world, in the the world with uh, certificates and distributed systems, um, it's easier to provide the, the identity information, uh, but it's imp- but there is one big difference there that you can never know who because people can share credentials. So you can only know who to hold responsible. And uh, that's an important distinction that's often forgotten. The, the identity-based people, the Apple people always say, but how do you know who did it? And in the real world, people share credentials. And so you still don't know who did it, but they don't understand that until you point it out. I've got 15 more minutes. So, Gernot, what would you like to talk about? Um, I just had to skim through my notes on the paper. One comment I had, which is um, when you taught over adoption barriers, etc. And I think the biggest practical barrier here is just that the fact that security by and large is a classical market failure. The market rewards people building insecure systems, building things quick and insecurely. And um, we're using the Zoom platform here. And of course, the way they became really dominant is by shipping something very quickly that was very functional and very insecure. Um, Fortunately, Zoom bombs don't kill people. But Elon Musk is now doing the same with um, self-driving cars, and uh, <laughs> I hope they put them in jail before they before he kills too many. But um, this is the sort of attitude we are in in general in security. So that's that's why um, uh, in the chapter we also point at uh, the blockchain ecosystem as a source for hope, uh, and you know, being the founder of a startup company. Agoric in the blockchain ecosystem, I can uh, you know, say very concretely that the incentives here really are very, very different in a good way. Uh, that uh, if, you, if you respond to time to market pressures and ship insecurable crap quickly in order to get out onto the market, the... The mar- this ecosystem punishes you very quickly. Uh, yeah. Is that 
suddenly, you know, uh, exploitable flaws will cause hundreds of millions of dollars to disappear overnight with no recourse that that's unrecoverable. Uh, and the, so the effort that people in this ecosystem put into verification, for example, I mean, these are, you know, startup companies building new systems and deploying it and putting some significant effort into third-party security audits, into formal verification, into um, much more rigorous uh, code reviews and uh, and open reviews uh, you know, through the uh, open source, um, inviting people to criticize and find flaws and having tests net, test nets, adversarial test nets, inviting people to try to attack uh, significant bug bounties with actually a lot of money being posted as bug bounties. Uh, and all of this in, in, in the, you know, against the reality of the fact that once the system goes commercial, the amount of money to be stolen is the huge bug bounty that will attack attract, attract attackers very quickly. So uh, this, for the first time, provides a hostile enough ecosystem, even for early efforts, that the early efforts feel a genuine market pressure to be secure before their first real deployment. And this is just completely different than you know, my previous 40 years in the computer industry, where I've been you know, begging companies to pay, including Google, to pay more attention to security. And instead, they just keep shipping insecurable systems and manage the insecurities rather than fix them. Uh, it's genuinely different here. And the result is that we now have, because of those market pressures, this ecosystem has a chance to build a full stack from the foundations all the way up to the user, including the user interface issues, um, and all of this is very early. Uh, so there's still a lot of actual work to be done here to, to achieve this goal. But we've, we're feeling the genuine market pressures to build the, at all of the levels of the stack to get them right enough so that people can use them with, in a safe enough manner where real assets are at stake. Uh, and by evolving a full stack of abstractions from the foundations all the way up to the user, uh, a lot of these ideas, a lot of the software concretely, will be also reusable outside of blockchain per se and would be able to substitute for other software. This is the, the um, uh, what do you call it, Gernot? The, um, the, not sly, but the, uh, the, um, we were trying to kind of slip in the. Uh, I mean, DAO? I forget the term you used. DAO? But the, the. I'm sorry? You mean stealth? Stealth, stealth. That's the term that Gurnot used. Yeah. And we call it genetic, genetic takeover elsewhere in the book. Um, is that if there's one place where a better ecosystem can evolve, where most of that ecosystem is reusable outside of blockchain anyway, then when attacks on mainstream software get bad enough, if they grow gradually enough that the mainstream software is destroyed 
incrementally enough that we're still in a civilization that's working during this during this dynamic, then we've perhaps grown an alternative that people can switch to instead. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of operating system that you build for blockchain has many similarities to block to operating systems like SEL4, the swing set operating system that Agoric is building does, but in many ways they're fundamentally different because of the need for blockchains to be um, deterministically replicatable. Um, but a lot of the levels above the operating system that, that we are building in the Agoric stack would be directly portable onto systems like SEL4 uh, that, um, uh, or onto bare metal that could run in a more conventional way outside of blockchain. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I want to touch on one point that um, Alison raised in her questions, and that's what the what's the role of AI. Um, there, there's there's lots of AI for cybersecurity happening right now. And um, I must say I'm a bit ambivalent about this because I see AI in the security space basically as a combustion accelerator. It it accelerates the arms race because um, it automates finding of bugs both for the attacker and the defender. And it doesn't really fundamentally change the the, the problem that the attacker has the advantage. The attacker only has to find one hole and the defender has to cover them all. And AI just makes that whole loop faster, I think, is, is the main issue. Um, you can argue that um, it will probably make things harder to attack, but then, yeah, you can automate the attacks much better. So I'm not sure whether it's a net gain or a, um, a loss, but of course, given that the attackers are in it, the defenders have to be in it as well. <laughs> until they build systems that are secure from the, from the bottom up. The, uh, the, way I, the, the way, you know, the picture we try to paint in this chapter is that uh, right now the main problem, the main problem behind the market failure that we've talked about is that, uh, the, is that the world right now is too forgiving, that the attacks are not intense enough. And that uh, automated attacks can make the attacks sufficiently intense that the current um, the current degree to which the world is forgiving of companies deploying insecurable crap uh, uh, might get fixed. That the that the um, strong attack incentive that we're seeing in blockchain that causes that ecosystem to be hostile enough that only secure software survives long as the long-term, um, uh, you know, the long-term survivors in that ecosystem, uh, that uh, automated attacks, as we saw in the DARPA Grand Challenge, uh, can make the regular world of software hostile enough as to make deploying insecurable crap Stop. So, so you, you you you're basically saying that the the effect is indirect in that um, it it makes the attacks too easy, so people have to start doing something about it. Yeah. 
let, let, let's right. hope that's actually true. <laughs> Basically, you say it's going to fix the, the market failure. So we can always hope. Yeah. Yeah. There's another thing that, that we point to along the same lines, which is ransomware. Um, uh, there's, you know, we say that ransomware right now is about the best case we can hope for. And the reason is that it creates an incentive for attackers to attack in a visible manner and to attack systems individually rather than mounting a simultaneous attack uh, across the industry uh, at once. So uh, given that the danger of cyber war is that uh, potential warring parties stockpile attacks or use them only for spying, which has no visible damage, uh, and then in an actual cyber war might have an incentive to suddenly deploy them as a simultaneous attack against an adversary so the adversary doesn't have a working system to recover from, the incentives on ransomware are quite the opposite. Uh, the, um, the ransomware attacker wants their victims to keep functioning uh, well enough to pay off the ransomware and then recover operation uh, if they don't want to kill the kill the victim. Um, and uh, but this only helps if the victim, once they've been attacked and pay off the ransomware and try to recover, react to this by turning to more secure software instead, rather than just running the same old insecurable crap again. And that's that's where this issue of the adoption barrier is so so important, which is even someone recovering from ransomware, knowing that they have a problem, viscerally feeling that they have a problem like they've never been able to convince themselves of before, still have no good software that they can adopt instead because the rest, you know, the us building secure platforms haven't gotten far enough as to provide them commercially viable alternatives that they can adopt even when they're feeling that degree of pain. So we so so this ransomware dynamic only helps once these secure systems have gotten far enough that they provide an actually adoptable alternative that people can can adopt when they're feeling this pain. I, I think Gernot uh, may need to drop off at this point. Gernot, would you like to just That's say correct. a couple words to wrap up? We are so thrilled that you joined us. Any last comments on your way out the door? Um, no, not really. I was fun talking to you guys and um, yeah, hope I can help help improving the future. It's uh, case we can hope for. Thank you so much for joining and, us. And, and certainly um, thanks a lot for all this uh, strong moral support they are giving to ACL for particularly Mark here. <laughs> all right. Thank you for joining us and uh, we all look right. forward to seeing you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Mark, uh, do you have anything you want to continue talking about or are we at a good wrapping point? Uh, so another thing that we talk about in the chapter uh, that where I think our intuitions might be it's somewhat in conflict with Alan's intuitions 
is on the and so 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 I'll turn this into a question for Alan. Is Alan has also been a processor designer, a CPU uh, designer, uh, and and very much involved in uh, processor design. Um, uh, and I think he was involved in the HP Itanium version of the x86 architecture. Alan, no, correct. Itanium was not a version of x86, but yes. Itanium was a very okay. different architecture. Yes. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that we talk about in this chapter is the really terrible problem of hardware supply chain attacks is even if you've got a open hardware design that's been verified to be secure, that it's very hard to know that the hardware device that you've bought that seems to that passes all of the tests that you can um, come up with to test it against the the design that it supposedly implements, or even looking at it under an electron microscope, there are too many ways to build hardware. For example, for example, link to this paper about cite the paper about uh, attacks at the analog level where you've purposely deviated slightly from pure digital logic design rules in order to uh, uh, let charge accumulate in a targeted manner that the attacker knows how to induce to cause a bit flip from a software-induced pattern uh, that causes that charge to accumulate. That, that, you know, this is one of many ways in which Hardware manufacturers have lots and lots of degrees of freedom to build undetectable trap doors that can be triggered by the attacker. And at the same time, even if the hardware manufacturers have a strong disincentive to do that because they want to ship hardware that people want to buy and use, not um, they are operating within jurisdictions like the United States that's known to strong arm manufacturers into including trap doors in systems uh, via national security letters that also under severe legal penalties uh, force them, you know, criminal penalties, not civil penalties, uh, force them to not disclose that they've included those trap doors. So this seems to be together just an incredibly hard set of problems. Uh, and I'm wondering what what um, uh, you know Alan's response to that is. Yeah, I um, I'm, I'm just looking at the article that Ryan posted because I read one recently uh, pointing out that actually um, the variations in manufacturing, the unavoidable variations that happen in manufacturing, make that attack actually impractical. I don't I don't remember uh, exactly where I read it. Maybe uh, one of the IEEE magazines. Uh, that uh, those unavoidable variants, in theory, that's that's viable, but it's not a practical uh, practical scheme. The other thing is that uh, the actual distribution of the work in producing a chip for a processor uh, is distributed among many companies, each doing its own individual steps, and unless they're all in cahoots together it's very hard to preserve that kind of undetectable backdoor. 
So, so just the- so, let, let me just interrupt you there. Uh, my intuition would be exactly the opposite, that it's an or rather than an and, that any that you have more parties, any one of which could subvert the the system because a trapdoor can occur in many parts of the, of the system. And, and in fact, because of the, um, the tight uh, limits on how things operate, that a variation that one step, imagine putting down multiple layers of a chip. Right. And each layer being done by a different company. This is not, it's not, you know, the layer of the chips now, I don't know how many layers there are, tens, hundreds, I don't remember, lots of lots of layers. Uh, and uh, some of them are done in one place and some are done by another company in another place. I, I didn't know that till recently. Uh, but those interfaces are very delicate. And uh, any variation is likely, more likely to lead to chip, chip failure than a vulnerability. So again, these are, I'm not saying these attacks are impossible. They're theoretically possible. Um, the articles I've read more recently say uh, the threat may be real, but it's going to be very difficult to mount. And there are certain things in the supply chain that make them harder. So, uh, and and by the way, uh, uh, a digital uh, changes to the digital properties are actually easier to put in than the analog again because of the manufacturing uh, variances. So um, I, I think that um, supply chains attacks against NPM are much more serious problem than against our chips. I agree. You know, in fact, we, we have Rohammer and all that. Has that been um, used in an attack in the wild or is it just a theoretical attack? I know it's very hard to mount. I know people have demonstrated it. I don't recall reading of any uh, CVEs about it, attacks in the wild. And again, these supply chain attacks are extremely difficult. And if there are easier paths, uh, I expect that those will be taken first. Oh, and by the way, there is research. I know one professor at Stanford uh, is uh, actually doing work on detecting both analog and digital uh, supply chain attacks against chips. I spoke to him, well, now it was uh, 10, maybe 10 years ago where I was still working for HP. Uh, and uh, he had some interesting prospects for how to, how to detect uh, uh, such attacks. So. Uh, if, if you could, um, you know, offline, but if you could find a, uh, a link to that, and, uh, I'd, I'd certainly be very interested. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, I, you know, I'm watching a baseball game and I'm reading IEEE Spectrum and, like, and then something from what I'm reading sticks in my head, but where I got it from this. Okay. Steve? Yeah, just a couple of thoughts about defenses against that kind of thing. One is sort of like you say in the chapter, having a kind of hierarchical system with multiple redundancies. So I could imagine, you know, having three separate implementations of every functionality on different supply chains, and then they all get checked together. That would make sort of detecting it more possible. The other is there's I think there's often the possibility for a complex computation of developing a checker, which is much cheaper than the computation itself. And so using formal methods, it might be possible to uh, wrap all of these uh, things with checkers that statistically at least catch uh, any mistakes with high probability. So, so, so Steve, the, the problem there is um, the competitive pressures. Uh, in, it turns out that Intel's profit 
on the chips at least, is determined almost entirely by how much silicon. So they were making things to save, you know, uh, one half of 1% of the silicon. And that translated into, I don't know, $10 million over the lifetime of the chip. And then the other one is performance. All these checks um, uh, will affect performance simply because of the extra data paths involved. And even if the critical path isn't touched, if you're just tapping to read what's on the critical path, that slows things down by three picoseconds. And again, the competitive pressures will make that very hard. We have we had one case where um, HP had a, a bus problem and um, uh, they they wanted to we wanted to put a te- so the problem was if you have normal rank, if you have disks for your persistent storage and a CPU gets fried, you can pull the disk out and plug it into another computer. But if you're using NVRAM as your persistent store in the CPU fries, you're stuck. Now, HP had a management bus in the back, and what we wanted to do was put on a tap to get so that you could read out that NVRAM. And it turned out that it was going to cost, you know, two nanoseconds or some very small thing out of, you know, out of 50 nanoseconds. It was going to cost them two nanoseconds in normal operation, and we couldn't couldn't make it happen. So you have to understand, uh, and this is, again, maybe the market failure, that we're not willing to pay these small amounts of competitive advantage uh, for a large gain in security. Yeah, and, and I think it's also one where we'd have to think in terms of segmenting the market that, um, uh, you know, the entire time I've been in the industry before blockchain, uh, everything uh, amplified, you know, everything corroborated the point that Alan just made that, that you know, you, that I propose something to a company and if it has any significant performance costs at all for the sake of any degree of, in, of, of, you know, a, of increased security, no matter how high, uh, that a that a performance cost, you know, three percent was kind of what I what I eventually absorbed as sort of the absolute threshold. If it cost more than three percent performance, it didn't matter how much more security it provided; it was simply a no go. Um, and then Ethereum came out, which is really just about pro- creating a credible computer platform. Just answering this supply chain problem it does it at a factor of, at a cost of a, of at least a million x um uh, uh uh overhead compared to a normal hardware cpu but as the world has demonstrated there's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of commerce that we didn't know about that was waiting for a credible cpu and was able to make use of it at a performance cost of a million X. So one of the things that it's very easy to underestimate is what is the potential market that is for which there is no technology available that, that currently would serve that market. So we're not seeing the market arise. And I think I think a lot of these calculations about security versus performance are very much in that category. That you're seeing the the incremental payoffs from decrease in performance and incremental security, and you're not seeing what's sort of on the other side of a major transition 
like Ethereum was? Well, it's not just on the manufacturing side. It's on the purchasing side, too. You'd think that banks and the big financial houses would be willing to pay 10% more to get a chip that was more secure, and they are not. It's that simple. Um, and Ryan has, a, has an attack. Uh, he mentions the attack about uh, subverting the random number generator, and that's true. Um, I, I, uh, I actually have a patent on a num- random number generator that will detect if it's been subverted, but that's a different matter. Uh, it was interesting. The last time I attended RSA physically on the trade show floor, there were at least half a dozen companies selling either hardware to generate random numbers or random numbers themselves. And uh, it surprised me because I would have thought that the random numbers we're generating on our processors are good enough and we can get them fast enough. But apparently there's a market for that. Right? Sure. I wanted to add that um, regarding the the market, um, several vendors have come together for an open source, high security hardware project for storing keys that you would use in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Um, so I think for some of us that um, the market demand is changing. Um, and I, I hope that we can find the, uh, the security solution. So, so for keys, there are key management systems out there that are uh, uh, rock solid, very, very secure. Uh, I know HP bought a company, Atala, that, that marketed them. Every device you use has a, uh, a secure enclave. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, you know, on the laptop, it's a TPM. I don't know what they call it on your phone. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, those have never been successfully attacked. There have been uh, user interface attacks. There have been API attacks. For example, getting it to sign, getting it to sign something the user did not intend to sign. But I don't know of any direct theft of the keys stored in these devices. Um, so that may be a better answer for that subset of the problem rather than trying to harden the general purpose processor itself. And and by the way, they have their own random number generator because these this when they sign, they need an ounce to prevent replay. Yeah, the, the problem with secure enclaves is that um is that you're still trusting the hardware manufacturer. Exactly. Yeah. And in this case, you're you're tr- you're trusting them even more because generally the way these work is that the there's a, there's there's some root keys that the manufacturer has that would enable abuse if those root keys were were used for nefarious purposes and of course uh being companies within jurisdictions uh of governments that would strong arm them to engage in those nefarious purposes that's a that's a severe threat yes um and uh, uh, my understanding is that the, those keys are generated when the device is manufactured, um, and so that the company does not have direct access to the key itself. By the way, that's another example of a big economic incentive of uh, breaking the security of these devices if you get the manufacturer's key. Um, but uh, 
So yeah, so each end of each device has its own key, and that's generated when it's man when it's manufactured. Then there's a manufacturer's key, which is highly protected. Um, but if you know, if you could get the Intel master key out of the TPM, uh, that would be worth a lot of money to you. And people, I assume, tried. Never heard of it happening. So. Okay. Uh, Ag. Uh, this is Adrian Gropper. Sorry for the initials. Um, along uh, some of the lines that have been uh, talked about so far, uh, including recently this attack on a secure element by uh, in the IO uh, or what it is that you're signing case, uh, and what came up before about impersonation attacks, uh, the comment that was made, I think, by Alan. My question is this, and this is something I tried to take up at IAW a couple of months ago uh, without too much uh, feedback coming in, is this idea of uh, splitting the thing that uh, has the secure element, calling that the wallet, the thing that has uh, the keys and a secure element, uh, away from the thing that um, uh, does the user interface for the most part, in a domain-specific way, say different for healthcare versus uh, uh, whatever, uh, you know, travel. Um, in other words, uh, and this is something that is going on uh, to some extent in the signing with Ethereum example, where uh, rather than uh, allowing a lot of flexibility on the UI component of the wallet, they're basically just uh, standardizing uh, a little bit of information. Uh, that, uh, but anyway, so uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is, it seems to me that this would make impersonation much, much more difficult, as well as making everything more convenient in general, because you're only using one app or wallet to sign things, no matter what you're doing, even when people are designing user experiences that are domain specific. I'm sorry for the long question. Yeah, I'm afraid that 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 will have some advantages, but there's also opens up a new line of attack, um, which is um, uh, now you can talk to the wallet without the user interaction, right? And, oh no! Uh, I, I, what do you mean? Uh, the wallet just I think in your model, the wallet provides an API, and different applications using different keys will use that API to talk to the wallet. Right. Whereas if the wallet has its own agent, sure, then they have to use different keys. Right. Yeah. Uh, but my example. Well, again, I, I have to do a you know a threat analysis, but just quickly, it seems like there's there's a there's another place to insert uh, uh, malicious interactions, and so uh, that that would be the one thing I, I think of. from a. But how can you solve from, the potential sharing problem then, Al? Yeah, no. I mean, from a from a practical point of view, I'd much rather write, create a wallet that had an API and let other people worry about the domain specific applications. That would be a great thing, I think. Uh, but um, from a security perspective, I have to think about it more. Thank you. Any other topics you want to cover today, Mark? We have uh, we have to wrap it up fairly soon. Okay, I, I still want to come back to the distributed systems because 
distributed system security has some similarities with single machine security, but it has a lot of different implications. And I think uh, we really um, need to uh, understand that because the world is distributed. And uh, I don't know, I don't recall now, I read that chapter a while back, but I don't recall too much about that that space. So for example- you're, you're, You are correct. We don't say enough about that space. So for example, um, uh, revocation often comes up. And uh, uh, with with an ACL system, you, you have one place that to go to. So people always say, well, I can revoke because I could just remove the entry from the Apple. And then the next time you try to request. Um, one of the mistakes that the OLAF people made was that their bearer tokens could be what they called multi-audience tokens. That means you didn't know where, who might honor the token. So you couldn't tell that party to revoke. In a true cap system, the uh, token denotes the object that you're using. And therefore, you know who to tell to revoke. And so I think these are, these are important considerations. Also, um, in distributed systems, you, don't have, you have no possibility of confinement. On a single computer, you, you could imagine having confinement. Uh, and that has serious implications for policies that you can and cannot enforce. So I would, I would think that it's almost worth another chapter. Any other topics you'd like to cover, Mark, before we wrap it up? Um, do you have uh, Allison's questions in front of you? Is there? I can pull them up. Adrian has his hand up again. Adrian. Oh, uh, AG? No, I, I didn't. Uh, put a, uh, <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, Google Meets has a has a thing where when you start talking, it automatically lowers your hand. It gets it right about ninety percent of the time. Sometimes it lowers it because you're somebody's speaking loud, somebody else is speaking. In our last five minutes, um, we can deal with one of Allison's questions, which are: What are the similarities and differences between physical and digital security? Well, to me, the biggest difference is physical security has to be a presence, and digital security can be remote. Now, with IoT, that's changing because, uh, you know, somebody in, in Romania can attack my pacemaker. But, um, uh, with you know, if you're just talking about computers, that's, that's the big difference. If they need physical access to my machine, it's a much harder attack than if they only need electronic access. Yeah, I, uh, Alan, I think I think uh, your answers are are, are very good, for, um, uh, uh, very good points. But it's not what the chapter um, meant when it introduced oh. the physical versus digital. Sorry, <laughs> uh, was it? Uh, that's, that's okay. The like I said, what what you said was was still important. Um, uh, we were contrasting uh, sort of the pre-computer understanding we have of just physical security in the physical world uh, versus security in the digital realm. And what you're bringing up is that 
There's also a coupling, obviously, uh, between the digital realm and the fact that these, you know, that that this digital realm is embedded in the physical realm. So there's a coupling to to physical issues, and obviously the supply chain attacks we just talked about uh, touches on that. Many other things do too, but the the main intuition that uh, we were trying to get across in the chapter is that uh, in the pre-computer physical realm of physical security, that uh, you can't build impenetrable walls. You know, all, secu- all security is about boundaries. In the physical realm, you can build you know, thicker and thicker um, or more and more impenetrable boundaries, um, uh, but the, they can only resist attack. They can't prevent attack. So isolate, because of the nature of physics, real isolation is impossible. Whereas in the digital realm, we've got perfect boundaries all around us. They're cheap and plentiful. Uh, address space separation, uh, object encapsulation in programming languages, uh, cryptographic protocols are, 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 clear, are close enough to perfect for, for practical purposes. Um, and that, uh, um, so that's, you know, the first thing to understand about sort of the difference in intuition between the two. The other one is that in the physical world, uh, the defense is all about raising the marginal cost of attack. Whereas in the digital realm, there is no marginal cost of attack per victim. So there's sort of both good news and bad news in shifting from physical to digital. Uh, which is the good news is the cheap, plentiful, perfect boundaries, and the bad news is no marginal cost. Actually, um, actually I, I have a counterexample in that um, okay. when LinkedIn got hacked, their password database got hacked. Um, I did a quick calculation and found figured out that my password had 72 bits of entry, which means they were going to go after you before they went after me. In other words, my walls were thicker than yours. So... I think there is some analogy there that still holds. Yes. At, 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 at small key sizes, you've got a, um, a cost that's not to the degree of, of being a practical impossible. No, that's not the point. That's and, not the point I was making. I was making the point that the attackers will go after the easy targets before the hardens. So by hardening yourself, you're making, you're running, you're, you're outrunning your friends. You don't have to outrun the bear. That was the point. Okay. Um, uh, but then the, 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 the question that, that these plentiful perfect boundaries raises that we, you know, we raise the question and we try to answer it is uh, if we've got such perfect boundary material to build on, why have we built such hopelessly insecurable software architectures? And the reason is that we need more than isolation. We need cooperation between mutually suspicious parties, which means that we need to make all of our boundaries semi-permeable. We need them to enable the interaction across them needed for the cooperative composition um, uh, that we intend so that we can bring together their functionality into greater overall problem-solving ability, uh, but have at the same time that semi-permeability not let through too much potential to cause destructive interference. And by the way, I, I, think, 
I, I think the crypto barriers are not perfect because of the key management problem. Look at all the uh, breaks because of uh, lost and stolen keys. So, you know, these these are not perfect barriers, I don't think. Anyway, but your well, point about opening, needing to open them up is definitely true. Yeah. Uh, and and for the um, for the crypto, I would just make the same separation uh, that I would make, let's say, for address space barriers in uh, operating in uh, at the hardware level, which is the system is built to use them, secure operating systems, and then you know, logins with potentially subvertible login passwords. You can you can you're still sort of the endpoints of how do you get into them to make use of them and how do you how do you um uh so there's this initial entry problem but then once you're in the boundaries are perfect and i think that's that represents the cryptographic protocol reality as well is there's all sorts of attacks around setting up for example a tls connection once a tls connection is set up with adequate key size it's pretty close it's it's pretty close to impenetrable for practical purposes now, Mark, it's, uh, we have reached the end of our two-hour session. You may have noticed Allison is in the chat, so she did successfully reach her destination despite a, an hour's delayed flight, so all is well with Allison. I'm happy to let everyone know she's okay. And uh, any last words, Mark, or have we just basically reached a good ending point? Um. Let's see if Allison has any last words since she just joined us. But other, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think I've said what I had in mind. Very good. Allison, do you want to say hello or goodbye? Um, if so, you sure. can mute. Sure. I'm, I'm still uh, off-boarding. But yeah, I'm very, very sorry that I was late. I'm sorry that it didn't work out with the second password. But uh, as I could tell from joining for the last minutes, uh, you had a wonderful conversation. And uh, I'm really sure that Mark uh, was the perfect host for this one. So. I think it all turned out well. So, uh, yeah, very excited to have witnessed the final moment of this. Very good. Thank you, Allison. And uh, we'll wrap it up now. Thanks, everyone, for attending and for finding us uh, despite our technical difficulties. All turned out for, for the best in the end. So thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you, Gernot, who is now gone. Thank you, Allison. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Foresight Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>